Welcome to the audio podcast of the sermons from First Reformed Church in Edgerton, Minnesota. For more information on First Reformed, go to edgertonfrc.org or our Facebook page. Well, what a mess the family of God is in. Did you come to church this morning expecting an Old Testament reading like that one? We would probably all come to passages in the Bible that are strange and, for lack of a better description, awkward and maybe even a little bit distasteful. Without too much thinking, we can actually just think of a few other stories like this just in our time in the book of Genesis. We have Noah getting drunk and cursing his son for looking on his nakedness. Then there's Abraham not trusting the promise of God and having a child with his wife's handmaiden. Well, and then that situation got even worse because Sarah got jealous and banished his child and her handmaiden away from them. Then you have the sons of Jacob that we read not too much further back, convincing a whole group of men to be circumcised, and then they got vengeance for the rape of their sister by killing the men while they were sick after the ritual was performed. Now, you know, there might be some solace for us in looking at these types of stories. I mean, I know there is a little bit of solace in looking at these stories. For me, when you see what a mess the people of God are at times, you might feel like maybe your problems aren't all that bad, right? The people of God were messed up. But regardless of how good it might make us feel, we we still arrive at texts like these, and we, we wonder, what in the world is going on here? Because not only did Moses deem it necessary for us to know this story. But we also believe and confess that Moses was inspired by the Holy Spirit to put this story in here as he is telling the story of the people of God. And I'm sure there were a lot of historical stories about the children of Jacob, and more specifically, I'm sure there's plenty of stories we could have heard about Judah. They might have even been on the table as, as uh, Moses was writing it out. But We don't have those. We have this one. And so part of what we're going to do today is consider its place in the story and consider the significance of why it's there. But before we move on to doing that, I want to do something I often do when we're in texts like this, and I probably honestly should do a little more often. This this story is a good example of why we work through Scripture the way that we do. If we really believe what we just sang a few minutes ago when we sang 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17, if we really believe that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for our lives, then we should not shy away from the hard edges of Scripture or the awkward passages. And if we really believe that Scripture has authority, and if we really believe that Scripture is sufficient, then we want to approach even stories such as this one with the same reverence and respect that we do other passages. And so it is with that belief that all Scripture is God-breathed, and that Scripture is sufficient, we come to the passage believing those things today. And we're going to have three points today like we normally do, but we're not going to be going through the passage verse by verse like we usually do. We're going to go through the the meat of the story uh, sort of verse by verse, but we're not approaching this in the usual fashion that we do. Instead, We're going to be taking more of a 3,000-foot view of what's going on in the passage, 
But before we do that, we will line out our journey because it's always good to know where you're going. So let's take a look at our three points today. The first thing that we're going to see is that this is an important part of the story of Jacob's family. While it's a bit of a distasteful story, it's a story of how the covenant line advances. God has made a promise to a particular people and has promised faithfulness through a particular genetic line. And so we see how that line is passed on, even when it happens in an unusual way. Secondly, we are going to be seeing a contrast between a man who is worldly and a man who is godly. Now, to draw this point out, we're going to have to look ahead a little bit in the story, but we don't have to look ahead too far. Judah, who we're looking at today, is a man who, on his own volition, moves away from the people of God and finds himself in trouble and failing. And so we're going to contrast him with the story that you and I know is coming next. We remember the story from Sunday school, the story of Joseph, where he is tempted by Potiphar's wife, Judah, a man of the world, Joseph, a godly man. He is tested, and he fails in the case of Judah. In the case of Joseph, he prevails. He remains faithful to God. Finally, we will see how the faithfulness of God is once again on display despite the workings of man. We know that throughout the book of Genesis, we get this idea that that people are going to mess things up. But God is always faithful. And we find that he is faithful throughout all of Scripture. Because what does he do? He brings the seed of the woman into the world. And the seed of the woman, Christ, saves us from our sin. And so, we start out seeing that this is an important part of the story of Jacob. And it starts out with the talking about offspring, because ultimately, that is what we have been following all the way since the fall in the garden, haven't we? We've been following this genetic line that is eventually going to lead us to Jesus. So as this starts off, we have to remember that this story is is kind of out of nowhere, because we've been following the story of Joseph. We just got done hearing how he was sold into slavery, and and we were just mourning right along with with Jacob, who thought his favorite son was dead. And now suddenly we're, we're thrust into this story about Judah? Well, the last chapter gave us the impression that everything was going to be about Joseph because he was the focus. We were never told that Joseph was our primary focus. We were told that These were the stories of the generations of Jacob when the story shifted. And so we shouldn't be surprised that a story about Judah comes into focus here. Even more so with us knowing that the covenant line, the promise of who will bring about the Messiah, does not go through Joseph. It goes through Judah. Remember, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so now we're seeing how that line is going to continue. And we see right off the bat here, that there's a problem because Judah is not too concerned with maintaining the line through their family. Remember back to his grandfather Isaac and his father Jacob. They were concerned with marrying someone from their family. But Judah goes off and he has three sons with a Canaanite woman. Without getting into too many of the details here, because we're working from that 3,000 foot level here, this son is wicked. And so 
we see that the Lord puts him to death. Now, we don't know why he was considered to be wicked, but we do know what the result of this is. This son of Judah has not provided a son who will continue the important covenant line. Now, this was a big deal. And so here we see the first reference of what was done to preserve the family and the covenant line in the Old Testament. The next in line brother was to provide the offspring that his brother is now unable to provide because he's dead. And so we move on, to, move on from Ur, who was wicked, to Onan, who makes certain that this custom of him providing offspring to his brother's wife doesn't occur. Now you're probably wondering, why is this such a big deal? Well, as the secondborn, Onan stands to be the one who receives not only the inheritance, but also the blessing of the firstborn. But if his brother's wife has a son, you know what happens. You can guess this. The inheritance and the blessing skips over and passes on to your nephew. So what's the benefit then of Onan doing this? And so he refuses to give offspring to his brother's wife, and what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and so this family has a second funeral. Now you can imagine that there are probably a whole lot of thoughts going through Judah's head. He clearly wants to follow the tradition and commands to some degree, but he doesn't want to lose a third son. So he sends her back, Tamar, to her father's house. Now what is interesting here is that the problem is that Judah seems to be a little bit superstitious. The son is a little bit too young to provide the offspring. And Judah is assuming that the problem is with Tamar, the wife, as opposed to taking the log out of his own eye that maybe the problem's with them and his family. So he gets a little bit superstitious and thinks that he's going to lose a third son if, she becomes the, or if he becomes the wife of Tamar. You know, it can't be him. It can't be his sin or his sinful sons. It, it has to be her. So he sends her back to her father's house, and then he becomes neg- negligent in his duties that he has to Tamar to make sure that she receives a child. So we know what happens. Uh, Tamar knows that the third son is old enough to provide her with a child, but yet Judah has, whether out of laziness, disobedience, or superstition, kept the third son away from her. Well, Tamar hears that Judah is coming to town, and she covers her face with a veil, and Judah takes the bait, assuming that she is a prostitute. And so to cover the cost of what he is seeking, he promises to bring her something, but she wants some proof that he isn't going to, you know, run off and not complete the transaction. So she requests some items that would be clearly connected to Judah, and after they're together, she doesn't go back to the city gates, and he's not able to complete the transaction with the livestock. And so when Judah learns that Tamar has not only been immoral, but she is with child as a result of the immortality, we get another moment in Genesis where you and I can say, well, that escalated quickly. He hears that she is pregnant, and he wants to burn her. Yeah, business picked up real quick there. But now we know why Tamar ran off with Judah's possessions. This is her proof that Judah is the father of her child, and that this proof shows that this is not only her immorality, but his. Well, 
Judah acknowledges that she is more righteous than he is. And so her life is spared. And so hopefully we see the significance here of this story and the story of, of why it is significant to the people of God and why it's a part of their continuing story and our following of the line to the Messiah, which we're going to come back to when we arrive at our third point. But, but now we want to consider where this event lies in the telling of Genesis. And we're going to take a look at the contrast that this provides for us before we go back to Joseph next week when we find him in Egypt. So last week, we were told of Joseph, daddy's little favorite, right? He was, he was sold into slavery, and we see that he is considered to be as good as dead. He was forcefully removed from the covenant people of God. So he is being taken away from the covenant people against his will. That's significant. And as we moved on to the next chapter, what did we see happening? We see that another son of Jacob moves away from the covenant people of God. But he does so on his own volition. Now, we don't know why he doesn't desire to be around the covenant people, to be near the presence of God. We don't know why he isn't too concerned with the promises of God because he just goes off and marries a Canaanite woman. We also know that he isn't very, very morally upright because of his refusing to keep the family obligations. We see that he did not want to provide offspring for Tamar like he was required to. Remember that all of this is about more than giving her a child to have to take care of. This is about the family succession. It is about inheritance and all that was embedded in their culture back then. And then we see that ultimately that Judah is more concerned about the things of the world. Judah is more concerned about the pleasures of the flesh because he decides to unite himself to someone who he thinks is a prostitute. So the feeling that we get here is that Judah is a very worldly man. He is worldly when it comes to where he lives, away from the presence of the people of God. He is worldly in who he chooses to marry, deciding to marry a Canaanite woman. He is worldly in selfishly letting his daughter-in-law not have offspring. And he is worldly when it comes to his sexual ethic. Judah is a man of the world. And the story lets us know how the succession of the Messiah happens. But it also sets us up to follow Joseph again. Because as we know, the story of Joseph is not going to be a worldly path. We know this from learning about Joseph back in Sunday school. You've heard me say before, when we look at the mess that the people in the Bible make of their lives, there's only a couple of people in the whole uh, Old Testament and really in the Bible itself who end up looking good, right? We have Joseph who ends up looking good and maybe Daniel. Every other major character is a wreck. And so we see this contrast here between jo- Judah and Joseph. We see Joseph, who's not going to go down the wrong path. Now we see Judah, who had nothing to gain but a few moments of pleasure by hiring a prostitute. But what do we see with Joseph? Joseph loses everything by holding to a godly sexual ethic, by refusing the wife of Potiphar. So Joseph is a godly man, and his brother Judah is a worldly man. 
And we're going to be drawn to Joseph for his godly life, even though it initially leads to his suffering. And it is through this difficult but godly path that God is going to rescue his people here in Genesis. God is going to use the godly man to rescue his people. And so with, so with this in mind, this helps us to clearly see the faithfulness of God to the promises that he makes to his people. And while that will become even more clear as the story of Joseph progresses, as we continue through this final part of this chapter in Genesis, we do see the faithfulness of God once again as this passage closes up. Now, we're going to be able to zoom in now from 3,000 feet and see the story clearly here as we see this, these children being born. And we find out that despite the mess that humans make of the, of the things that, that, by the things that we do, God is still faithful to keep the promise that he made to redeem a people for himself through the Messiah. So we're once again treated to a story of some twins who are the offspring of the covenant people. Remember back to the story of Jacob and Esau. That's important here. And remember the confusion that happened by God promising Rebekah that the younger of the two twins would be the one who through him the covenant would continue that the covenant promise would rest upon. Remember, Rebekah believed God. Isaac had his favorite, though, and there was a whole lot of family drama that developed out of all of this. But God used it. God used it. He chose Jacob over Esau, and the promise of God continued. And now, two generations later, we see twins again, don't we? And we once again see confusion in their birth. It appears as though one child is going to be born first, but the other one ends up being the firstborn. It seems as though the one with the scarlet thread will be the firstborn and will be the child of the promise. But instead, the arm is pulled back and Perez is born first. And it is on him whom the covenant promise rests. And as the line to the Messiah continues to unfold, it is once again seeing that God providentially ordains the second child to be the one who is chosen to pass on the promise. Perez is ultimately the second child, but in God's providence, he becomes the chosen one. He becomes the child of the promise. And as we continue through the story of Genesis, we will see that God is continually faithful to do as he promised. And that promise is shown by the fact that he keeps a people for himself. We've seen how the promise seems to be in jeopardy over and over again in Genesis, but what does God do? He takes the worst of circumstances and he keeps the promise anyway. Even though the immorality of Judah and the shame that this story brings on his family happens, we find that God will bring the promise through him and his son Perez we will find that even though the faithful Joseph is taken from the people of God and he is persecuted for his faithfulness to God, God is going to use it all to bring about his purposes for his glory and to save his people. And while this is a strange passage to have come up for us to have on a Sunday where three young men are making profession of faith, the ultimate truth of this passage is that God is faithful and that's what we're seeing today. I personally actually kind of found it funny um, 
because I titled the sermons in advance um, like a few months ago, and when I looked up what it was today and saw it was titled Family Shame and then the boys were making Profession of Faith, I thought that was kind of funny. I think I texted Katie because I thought it was funny, and she said, that works. <laughs> so anyway, sorry to put your private message out there, but it was, it was good comedy. So um, honestly, it was, the idea of family shame wasn't a commentary on the boys, honestly. But anyway, we celebrate today the faithfulness of God. What we see in this passage is God's faithfulness. Now, years back, we were all brought to the font of baptism. Most of us were brought to the font without any knowledge of it ourselves. We had to be told later on. We didn't know what was happening. And yet, the covenant people of God in that place, and for many of you, it was this place, they made a promise that they would raise children, raise you and all children in the faith. And we trusted something very important when we did that. And when we do that, we trust that God is going to be faithful. We trust that that water is a sign and a seal of the covenant promise of God and that he will be faithful in those waters to bring us to faith through his word and spirit. We trusted that God would be faithful to his people and that he would work faith in the hearts of his people. And so what did we do? We faithfully proclaimed the gospel, knowing that the spirit of God would be at work. And through the faithful teaching of God's word and the power of the Holy Spirit, today we make public profession of faith knowing that God has been at work. And the same thing was good for us. God was faithful, just as he was faithful to his people in Genesis and throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament. Just as God was faithful to his people then, he was faithful to you and I and faithful in the waters of baptism. And you're going to notice that as we begin these proceedings for the profession of faith in just a few minutes, you're going to notice that the beginning of the service for profession of faith is identical to the service for baptism that we did just last week. And that is because we are not ultimately celebrating the profession of faith that is being made today. We are celebrating that, don't get me wrong. But ultimately, what we are celebrating, and the reason we pour the water in the fount, is because we are celebrating the faithfulness of God in the waters of baptism. That we trust that when we administer this water, he will be faithful. We can look upon these waters and trust that God has been faithful and will be faithful to his covenant people. And so the application for you and I from this interesting passage and the water that we're going to see poured into the fount here today is that we need to remember to trust the promise of God. And we need to trust his providence. The call on our lives is to be faithful, to not be a Judah, but to be a Joseph, to trust that God will work all things together, all the things that we see in the world, all the chaos that happens in the world. God will work all things together for good for those of us who trust in Christ. Because it's because 
that he has paid the price for our sin by bearing the wrath of God in our place, that we are called to abandon the ways of the world, that we are called to abandon the allure of the flesh and instead seek godliness and seek holiness in the face of any and every situation. And so may the truth of God's Word, the work of the Holy Spirit, and the knowledge of the faithfulness of God, may it spur us on. May you and I be faithful to God as we live and serve Him in this world. May the truth of God's faithfulness in the midst of any and every circumstance cause us to seek Him in holiness and faith. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Edgerton First Reformed. For more information on First Reformed, navigate to our website, edgertonfrc.org, or our Facebook page.